Good afternoon and welcome to the first session of the 2010 Aspen Ideas Festival. My name is Elizabeth Baker Keffer and I'm Vice President of The Atlantic. And on behalf of the Aspen Institute and The Atlantic, I wanted to welcome you all very much to this year's Ideas Festival. I'm delighted to bring us all together for the first program of the week. And this program, even in advance of the opening session, which will take place at 5 p.m. in the Greenwald Pavilion. Immediately following the opening session, we'll be back here for the opening recession for pass holders. So please join us for that as well. Reception. reception? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, the opening reception for all pass holders. So please join us back here. Sorry for that slip. And our early start is thanks to the great generosity, but the very busy schedule of one Tom Friedman, who's one of our speakers today. He is off to Africa just after. No, I, I met later. That's um, yeah, later. Yeah. Sorry, later this summer. off to Sun Valley. He's off to, <laughs> off to Sun Valley. After, should I just start over? Yeah. <laughs> He's off to Sun Valley after this session. So you won't be able to be with us for the Ideas Festival, but was generous enough to suggest this early start. And I think most of you in this room know Tom Friedman. That's why you're here. He's a foreign affairs columnist for the New York Times. He's a recipient of three Pulitzer Prizes and the author of five books best known of which are The World is Flat and Hot, Flat, and Crowded. And Tom is joined by Dove Seidman for this session, which is titled Inspirational Leadership and Sustainable Values. Dove Seidman is founder, chairman, and CEO of LRN. It's an industry that was built on a philosophy that the most profitable businesses are the the most principled businesses are the most profitable over the long term. And LRN and Green Order are working now with 500 plus companies in developing corporate culture and leadership around an ethical set of principles and values. So this session again is inspirational leadership and sustainable values. And I just wanted to take one more moment to thank Shell Company, who's one of the underwriters of the 2010 Aspen Ideas Festival, as well as the rest of our underwriters. A program this ambitious wouldn't be possible without their support, so we thank Shell and the others as well. So I will turn things over to our two speakers with my great thanks. Thanks so much. Well, thank you all for uh, coming out to this uh, warm-up session for the Ideas Festival. And uh, I know that we gave you uh, a bit of a uh, vague title, Inspirational Leadership and Sustainable Values. Um, what we hope to do this afternoon is really cover three uh, broad issues. Um, what are uh, situational values? What are sustainable values? And how do we produce the kind of inspirational leadership that will give us more sustainable values than situational values. Now, where does all this come from, and how did Tom Friedman and Dove Seidman happen to hook up? Uh, Dove and I met at the Starbucks at the base of Aspen Mountain. Um, and uh, I, at the time, was working on um, my book, The World is Flat, and uh, uh, he simply came up, introduced himself. We fell into conversation. Um, and as our wives and children know, we haven't stopped talking since. Um, at, uh, Dove wrote a book called How uh, that sort of fit perfectly um, uh, into the platform uh, of The World is Flat. And since then, we've been trying to build on that platform. And what we're going to share with you today uh, is really our latest conversation, which uh, we've done several times now around the world, uh, of how we build off that platform and bring together the whole issue of sustainability with the issue of inspirational leadership. So I, I uh, uh, wrote a book uh, Two years ago, it came out in paperback uh, um, last year, uh, Hot, Flat, and Crowded. And uh, this book, when it came out in hardback, unfortunately came out the week that a bank called Lehman Brothers 
um, uh, met its maker. And um, uh, basically, I had the misfortune of uh, trying to promote a, a new book, a book on environment, uh, in the teeth of the winds of an economic crisis, the worst we've had since the Great Depression. And after a year of trying to get people to think about environment and sustainability um, in the face of this economic crisis, uh, I finally had uh, an epiphany uh, and, and ended up rewriting the whole front of this book for the paperback that the economic crisis and the environmental crisis were actually the same crisis, rooted in the same problems. Um, basically, what I came to realize was that when historians look back on the year 2008-2009, what I think they will actually say is that it was the moment when both the market and Mother Nature hit the wall. Actually, it was the moment when both the market and Mother Nature hit the wall, and each in their own way said, you are growing in an unsustainable way. This is your warning heart attack. Turn around now. How are we growing? Well, in the simplest way, we were building more and more stores to sell more and more stuff, to be made in more and more Chinese factories, powered by more and more coal, to earn more and more dollars, to purchase more and more T-bills, to be recirculated back to America, to build more and more stores, to sell more and more stuff, to be powered by more and more, to be built in more and more Chinese factories, powered by more and more coal, to earn China more and more dollars so it could buy more and more T-bills, to be recirculated back to America, to build more and more stores, to sell more and more stuff. I could do this all afternoon. Um, that was basically the loop we were in. And I believe what 2008, 2009 was the moment when that loop basically um, blew up. When the market and Mother Nature said, you cannot do this anymore. And this was one crisis. And because of that, it was no accident that Citibank, Iceland's banks, and the ice banks of Antarctica all melted at the same time. <laughs> or if you don't like that, that's the reason that, excuse me, Bear Stern and the polar bear both faced extinction at the same time. Because actually what happened in 2008, 2009, was that the market and Mother Nature hit the wall. And the reason they were one crisis was because they were both actually based on the same accounting, if one can call it that. And that accounting was we allowed people to massively underprice risk, to privatize the gains, and to socialize the losses. So in the market, we allowed people to massively underprice the risk of subprime mortgages. We allowed the banks and investment houses that did that to privatize all the gains. And when they, when they blew up, we allowed them to socialize the losses on the backs of every American taxpayer. We have been doing the exact same thing in nature. In nature, we allow people to massively underprice the risk of emitting carbon molecules. We allow them to privatize the gains of cheap coal, cheap oil. And we are allowing them to socialize the losses in the form of carbon emissions we're putting in the atmosphere, charging on our children's visa cards that will be paid back in the future in the form of disruptive climate change. The reason these two crises happened at the same time is because they were based on the identical accounting, underpricing risk, privatizing gains, and socializing losses. But they weren't just based on the same accounting. They were also based on the same principles, if one can call them that. The principles of IBG and YBG. I'll be gone, 
or you'll be gone. I issue you a subprime mortgage, even though I know you have no chance of paying it back. You make $15,000 a year, and you're buying a $750,000 home, no problem. I'll be gone. Um, I bundle your mortgage with a thousand others into a bond that my investment bank on Wall Street sells to another bank in Dusseldorf. No problem. I'll be gone. Oh, oh, you can't pay the mortgage back? No problem. You'll be gone. Okay? So this whole crisis was based basically on the principles of IBG and YBG. I'll be gone or you'll be gone. Those are actually the opposite of the principles that we need to have really animating our behavior in both the market and mother nature. And that is the principle of you will always be here. So as I was wrestling with this issue, I called Dove one day, and we, we really started peeling this onion. And he said to me, Tom, you know, what really is underlying all of this is that there are really just two kind of values in the world situational values and sustainable values. Situational values say, I will do whatever the situation allows. If the situation allows me to issue a subprime mortgage to someone to buy a home, even though all I've asked of them is, can you fog up a knife, then I will do it. Sustainable values would tell me I shouldn't. Situational values, situationally, I can actually buy up 100 acres of the Amazon now, plow it up, and plant soybeans. Situationally, I can do that. Sustainable values would tell me I shouldn't. And what we've actually had here in the last decade is an explosion of situational thinking and situational behavior in both the market and Mother Nature. Now, our parents... They were the greatest generation. They built for us an incredible world of freedom and abundance. And that's why we called them the greatest generation. I fear that our gen, my generation, the baby boomers, will be remembered, as my friend Kurt Anderson says, as the grasshopper generation. We ate through it all like hungry locusts. Now we and our children, together, need to be the regeneration the regeneration. And to me, the single most important task of the regeneration is bring the concept of sustainability, sustainable values, into both the market and Mother Nature. This isn't just something for environmentalists. Sustainable values belong in both the market and Mother Nature. If we don't bring sustainability to both the market and Mother Nature, I believe that our generation will be more unfree than had our parents lost the Cold War. Because the market and Mother Nature will each in their own way impose on us constraints in how we live that will be worse than had the communists won the Cold War. See, remember something my friend and teacher Rob Watson taught me. Mother Nature, she's just chemistry biology and physics. That's all she is. You can't sweet talk her. You can't say, Mother Nature, we've been having a bad financial crisis. Could you take a year off? No, she's just chemistry, biology, and physics. She always bats last, and she always bats a thousand. 
Do not mess with Mother Nature. The market, market's just greed and fear, greed and fear, greed and fear, greed and fear at any second around a stock, a bond, a commodity, a piece of real estate. It's going to do whatever the balance of greed and fear dictate at any moment. Do not mess with the market. You can't spin it. You can't sweet talk it. The only thing you can do is come to these two forces, the market and Mother Nature, which are the two most autistic forces on the planet. Autistic in the sense of feeling no emotion whatsoever. And these two autistic forces, which are the biggest exogenous forces in our lives, can only be moderated one way, by bringing sustainable values to each, by bringing the concept of sustainability to both the market and Mother Nature. So, Dove, why, throw to you, why is this issue, do you think, of sustainability and situational values come to be so important? Why now? What is, what is it about this era? I'm really recreating our phone conversation that said these issues of situational values and sustainability, they aren't just for philosophers. They're for every person in this room. Why now? Can I have a clicker? You got the clicker. <laughs> He's always so demanding. Why now? First, it's nice to be with you, as always. Uh, you've been busy going from crisis to crisis, which will be part of my point. Uh, I think Aspen, in this idyllic environment, we have an amazing opportunity to rethink some fundamentals. What is the source of human endeavor? What is the source of human progress? What is the source of behavior that is sustainable and repeatable? And what is the source of leadership that can inspire us to be on a sustainable path? So I'd like to offer a, a deep answer, as, as deep as I can go. And let me start with a reflection on, what did I do? Help, help. Um, so I'll do this without this, and uh, someone can uh, reinstate here. So let's talk about crisis. You'll all agree that we've been living through times of crises. I think there are two types of crises. One type of crisis is, way, is what I call end-of-life crisis. Think of a meteor or a comet coming towards the Earth. Think of Bay of Pigs, uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. Potentially how we felt around 9-11. What is at stake? Annihilation. Our very physical existence is at stake. The other type of crisis is what I call a way-of-life crisis. Something about the way we're thinking, you know, that home prices will just go up and up and up, and never come down, that we can drill a mile deep into the ocean and never have a gusher or even a leak. Something about how we think and how we behave gets disrupted out of nowhere, and we find ourselves in paralysis. Now, Keynes, the economist, said that we tend to get away and get carried away with animal spirits or irrational exuberance. We love to get carried away. That's what makes us beautiful human beings, that we could be passionate and optimistic. And as we get carried away, we create innovation and growth. But if we get too carried away, we lapse into greed, arrogance, and unsustainable behaviors. On the other end of the spectrum, in a way of uh, life crisis, we find ourselves hunkering down, scared. We start blaming people, suing people, forcing bankruptcies. And we tend to go from side to side. 
And then we look back in history, and it turns out that we either were too greedy or too scared. Nothing justified the extremes. That's why FDR, our president, said we have nothing to fear but fear itself. He was trying to invoke in us a sustainable value, the value of hope, because he knew that if we lose meaning, we won't go forward. When the, and the going got tough, and the tough needed to get going, and he tried to inspire us around the sustainable value of hope. Now, I don't think it's a bad deal if every 20 years we're going to have a boom and a bust cycle. 20 years of prosperity, calm, and then a crash, and then 20 years again. But Tom, you taught us that the world is so hyper-connected that I submit to you that we're now going to have a crisis every 20 weeks, certainly every 20 months, maybe every 20 days, Lehman, Toyota, Greece, BP. In a world in which we are going to go violently and unpredictably and unimaginably side to side, now more than ever, we need to embrace a bulwark against this violent ricochet and simultaneously not just a bulwark, but a source of something that will guide us right down the middle because we've lost latitude. That's what sustainable values do. Now, the dinosaurs had an excuse. A comet hit the Earth, disrupted photosynthesis, and they could not adapt. They were too big to fail. We <laughs> do not have an excuse. This is a man-made crisis. I know you laugh around too big to fail, but we got used to thinking that if you're really big, you're not going anywhere. You're powerful. AIG's motto was the strength to be here. Merrill's was a tradition of trust, and each needed a bailout, one from the government and one from the private sector. See, we think it's about getting big, but we have to acknowledge that getting big was an ethic, a situational ethic of human endeavor. We tell young entrepreneurs, how are you going to scale your business? How are you going to grow? How are you going to have the most customers? Because we thought that what we need to do is just answer the how much question, not the how question. How to have how much? How much money? How many customers? I think that sustainable values do something else. They inspire in us a different ethic, not of becoming too big to fail, but what about becoming too valuable to society to fail, too principled to fail, too good to fail, too sustainable to fail. Sustainability propelled by sustainable values is an ethic of human endeavor that simultaneously is a bulwark against irresponsible behavior and propels the types of behavior that allow us to endure and have legacies. These are human values the values that literally allow us to sustain our relationships, values of trust, values of transparency, of honesty and integrity, not just about the environment, but about future generations and our grandchildren, the values that connect us deeply to other people. They are not here and now values. They are here and forever values. And they are values that call forth the best in us. Now, the world is getting this. So Tom describes this connected world. And there, here's one consequence of a connected world. A world that's connected is also transparent. And in a world in which nothing stays hidden, I better act as though I have nothing to hide. And in a world in which nothing stays hidden, I can only act as though I have nothing to hide by, in fact, having nothing to hide. And I, too, can go round and around and around. But there's a deeper point. If we are connected, the nature of our connections is exposed. Are we connected situationally? Or are we connected forever? Are we connected richly and meaningfully? or transactionally. Now, when we were not connected, the nature of connections weren't exposed. But if the only reason someone works at my company is what I pay them, they should leave if someone pays them more. If the only reason you buy a product from a company is price, you should switch loyalties if someone undercuts them. So, even, so now that the nature of connections is being exposed, 
we are turning to a deeper glue. How do we find our deeper source of hanging on to what we love, hanging on to people when we are so, so, so situationally connected? It's not an accident that Deer is the human flourishing company and Dow is the human element. Chevron is the human energy company. Cisco is the human network. Ally Bank, that's former General Motors credit, is now We Speak Human. One company after another is telling the world deep down we are not shallow, we stand for something. We stand for something that transcends how we make money, that transcends our product. We stand for you, for the environment, your future. Now it's one thing to proclaim and assert values, it's another thing to live them. Sustainable values force you to live them, otherwise you're inauthentic. But we need to recognize that even though this might just be marketing, they understand something about the connected world. And what they understand is the deepest and most significant consequence of an interconnected world. Interconnection is an amoral concept, but interconnection leads to moral and ethical interdependence. How you are affects me. The quality of your water in any part of the world is my problem too if I'm going to find sustainable growth. And for the first time, we have to understand what David Hume, the philosopher, said. The moral imagination diminishes with distance. Where do we go if there's no more distance? The moral imagination needs to be at the center of all of our endeavors. So think of behavior. I think we've entered the era of behavior. And I think we need to think deeply because I was watching The Godfather the other day. And the Tessio character appears and he says, please tell Michael I always liked him. Nothing personal, it was business. We went to funerals and in eulogies you heard them say, he was the most ruthless negotiator, the toughest boss ever, but the most loving husband and gentle father. Right? Milton Friedman, no relation, right? No. He said, that, uh, the only responsibility of a corporation is profits for shareholders. This chair needs four legs. What company can stand up on one principle? Shareholder value. So business spent years extracting itself from society, but there's no place to go. There are no externalities. We are not only hyper-connected, we are morally and ethically interdependent. And because of that, our behavior is now front and center. It's not only scrutinized, it's the source of our bulwarks and it's the source of our advantage. Now, I became a father a couple of years ago. And I noticed this habit that I probably got down the generations. I tell my child to behave right after he misbehaved. Behave. We associate behavior with goalkeeping. I used to meet CEOs over the years, and they'd say, listen, this behavior stuff is so important. Please speak to my goalkeeper, the general counsel, the head of compliance. Every CEO wants the best goalie, but they don't want to play goalie. So we associate behavior with compliance, following the rules. We associate behavior with do the right thing. I submit to you that behavior is the source of excellence. Now, if you go into the dictionary and you type in outdrink, outmaneuver, outfox, outsmart, they're words because these words are part of common vernacular. They describe how we think and how we behave. The word outbehave is not yet a word. The very idea, here we are at an ideas festival, I have an idea for you. The very idea that behavior is a source of excellence, the source of sustainable adv advantage and value creation is a new idea. And what does that look like to associate behavior, not just with goalkeeping, but with offense? I'll give you an example. The other day, I took a Southwest Airlines flight. I like the airline very much. I landed in Las Vegas. The flight attendant gets on the loudspeaker and says, listen, we've done some research at Southwest Airlines, and the research shows that if you cross your seatbelts before you deplane one over the other, you will have luck at the tables. 
It's a true story. So we looked at each other. We laughed. It was quite funny. But she got to us. She got to our hearts, and we did it. Now, there is a federal regulation that says that the next plane can't take off until seatbelts are crossed. So she inspired us to help her comply with a law. They also turned their planes around six minutes faster than their nearest rival. She got an operational advantage through her inspiration. They've also been marketing. Home on time, no frills, fun, and safe. And she connected me with that brand promise. I'm seeing this all over the world when you look at this. In Indonesia, it's a country fighting corruption. They've decided to launch a 1,000 honesty cafes, and they're bringing school kids to these cafes to pay on the honor system. Pay what you think the price of the meal was on the menu. Think of fighting corruption by extending trust to your entire citizenry to not just stand over there and count change, but to give them the freedom to do the right thing. So if we've entered the era of behavior, and if behavior is not this, just the source of not giving up goals, but it's the source of advantage, we need to rethink what leaders do. So let me, sports are often a harbinger. You see the most progressive behaviors. You see the best and worst, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Let me tell you about two coaches that get something about this interdependent world. Tony Dungy grew up where there are very few African-American role models in the NFL, certainly very few African-American coaches. He grew up knowing one thing about coaching. When you're the coach, Vince Lombardi said, winning is not everything, it's the only thing. He grew up being yelled at, command and control. And he decided to be quiet, to coach from a quiet strength, to write a book about principles, to bring faith into the locker room. And he won the Super Bowl. He's an up-and-coming progressive leader who had the courage to not be conventional. Tom Coughlin was told that if he doesn't win the Super Bowl the next year, he's out. He was known as a distant dictatorial figure. You know what he did? Instead of becoming more dictatorial, because he used to put buckets on the field and tell his players that if they don't throw up into the buckets, he will assume they didn't practice hard enough. He would find them for coming five minutes early to meetings because it wasn't early enough. It's true. So he appoints a leadership council in the locker room of the New York Giants, and he says, make your own decisions. And he starts to talk to players about family and enlisting them in a bigger conception of what it means to be a champion. And he went on a transformational journey of inspirational leadership. What do these coaches and what do leaders who don't scream understand? They understand two things. Leaders in power are about influencing the behaviors and actions of others. In the year 1300, power went to people who had the most land, because if I had more land than you, I could charge you rent to farm on my land. So it wasn't an accident that I conquered your land, so if I had it, I could build a castle and a moat and a fortress on it. Because power was associated with having a finite asset, more land than someone else. The industrial age comes upon us. If I have more money, I could charge you interest if I lend you some. We had power over people by having leverage. We were related situationally, and if I had more, I could get you to do something. We live in an age where ideas abound. Information is free. Knowledge is free. If the source of power goes from finite to infinite, then leadership must shift from power over people to power through people. What allows us to have power through people? Only inspiration. Inspiration is about not using carrots and sticks to coerce or motivate people. It's not my way or the highway. It's not get me the memo by 5 o'clock or else. It's about getting into people, inspiration, by calling forth in them their deepest beliefs, their, their sense of sustainable values, 
and painting for them a journey of significance and a mission that they feel is worthy of their dedication, talent, and commitment. And I think, I hope I've answered why in a world that is hyper-connected, morally and interdependent, where the source of power has gone from finite to infinite, progressive leaders are not breaking bad habits of stopping to scream because they never gained those habits, and those in power who want to stay in power are going to figure out not to just relate situationally by being popular, having the most money. You know, every human being wants to be conspicuous. We used to try to be conspicuous by having Ferraris. Look at my Porsche. I see people on their website say, look at how many followers I have on Facebook and friends on Facebook or followers on Twitter. People are standing out in new ways with ideas and they are conspicuous in their behaviors. So why don't I um, um, pause at this point and just underscore the fact that if we rethink this, I think we'll, we will embrace a new way of getting the best out of people that is also sustainable. Well, Dal, thank you. And I, I, just to pick up there and, and to drive home this point for people and, and, and to connect the two of us, one of the things I learned from Dove is that he wrote a book called How. That's all it's called, is How. Um, and it really gets to this behavior issue because the way he framed it to me, in, in, in a flat world, where we can now all see into each other so much more deeply, so much more clearly, and we can all tell each other what we see inside of you, inside of your company, inside of your institute, inside of your university. And we can all tell each other around the world what we see without a libel lawyer, okay, without an editor. Dove taught me that how, how you lead your life, how you run your business, how you say I'm sorry, how you don't say I'm sorry, is going to matter more than ever. That, that's what I want to stress that he means by the age of behavior. That's why we're in the age of behavior, and the only way to survive that in the market and Mother Nature is with sustainable values driven by inspired leadership. So we had a fun... We, we did this at the Davos World Economic Forum this year, and I was just thinking as I was listening to Dub, you, you have to... We have to do this test. Dub, we, we were speaking to a group of global CEOs from truly some of the biggest you know, companies in the world, and Dove, on the spur of the moment, decided to give a test. I remember the question, Dove, but do, do that test. I think we've got a, a good sample audience here. Let's see. How many of you uh, are or have been CEOs or heads of teams, non-for-profits? You ran something or were part of a team that runs something? Just raise your hand. All right, that's what I figured. Keep your hand up if it was relatively easy for you to produce a list based on your goals and objectives and how you do things and measure things at your respective organizations, could you pretty easily produce a list of your top 10 performers? You know, you have pretty... Everyone who had their hand up, can you produce, if we asked you, who are your top 10 performers? Can you do it? Okay. Now keep your hand right there. Leave your hand up if with the same clarity, confidence, and alacrity, and consensus among the senior team, you could produce a list of your top 10 ethical leaders. You know, the ones that live the company values in such an exemplified way that you want everybody to emulate them. The ones that are the future of your company, that really keep the brand promise, not just in the dark, but every day, every moment. Now look around and see how few hands there are. I will compliment you on this. This is a true story. It was about 50 CEOs, and everyone put their hand down. And this, not even one. Let me ask you the follow-up question. 
How many of you believe your organizations would be better and more sustainable if your answer to the second question were as clear as the first? Look at that. How many of you believe that you would be even better if there was overlap on the list? That your performers, <laughs> that your performers were about principled performance. You know, if I want to lose five pounds, it doesn't take me longer to diet. I just eat differently. It's not what and how, it's how you do what you do. It's not, it's, it's getting them in a reinforcing relationship. It's about principled performance. And how many of you believe that there is something about the world we live in, the flat world, Tom's hot, flat, and crowded world, the interdependent world, that compels us to go get an answer to that question and to weave that answer into the fabric and DNA of our organizations so that we won't have the crises we have and we will start to really create sustainable progress. Raise your hand if you think it's time to get an answer. <laughs> Thank you. Dov, let's go to the, the, um, uh, the Uber example of the day, BP. Um, if the CEOs of, of uh, uh, BP were here right now, I mean, the, the leadership team of, of BP, um, what, would you, what would you tell them? What would you say, here's what you guys got right, here's what you guys really got wrong? What would you, what would you tell them, given the framework we've been laying out here? Right and wrong or just wrong? Yeah, just, oh, yeah. if there's a right, we could yeah. probably... Look, get that I, done real quickly, but it's uh, obviously I don't even. I, I need to answer the question by first saying that it's a it's an enormous tragedy that gets more and more enormous by the day. Uh, but it would be even a greater tragedy if we finally don't realize that BP stands for the cost of energy beyond the pump. That if for the first time in our lives, if it's not clear now that we pay for the, our way of life beyond the pump, to me that's the legacy of BP. Now I wish their CEO talked to us day one. I would not have waited 56 days to apologize after I've been turned into the most shiny pinata on the planet. I know in crisis we like a scapegoat. But BP needs to ask itself, why were we such an easy scapegoat? Clearly we looked for a scapegoat, we always do. If you're going to drill that deep into the ocean, I would have told them, make sure you have a deep relationship with your people, with society, and with government. Because when it comes time to look for a scapegoat, you're pretty shiny to me. Those would have been the sustainable values. Sustainable values. How they behaved all along to have such deep connections, back to the deep connections, so they could not have been turned into a scapegoat. Secondly, I would have said, don't apologize on day 56. Apologize on day two. And put $10 billion up and ask others to join with you. And don't wait until you're blamed and then our president goes into extra legal territory after the government gives you a permit to drill. Without any legal finding of negligence or gross negligence, we were able to get $20 billion out of BP just through moral suasion. I think it's the right outcome. But imagine if they said, we're sorry, here's $10 billion on day two. What BP failed to realize, and this is the greatest irony, is they were the first to go beyond. You know when Chevron is human energy? BP was beyond petroleum. And they were the first to tell the world that they stand for more than oil. The lesson to learn is that that cannot be accomplished by your marketing department. It can only be accomplished if deep down in your DNA you've put sustainable values that propel the behaviors of others. Now, I don't know uh, when you were in New York, or anybody in New York, do you remember when Leona Helmsley said, only little people pay taxes? She got an extra year in prison because we felt that that statement said something about her character. The philosopher Heraclitus said, character is destiny. People act from character, malice say forethought, depravity of heart. Well, isn't it interesting that the BP chairman, and maybe it was a slip of tongue, talked about small people, little, little people, small people. What does that say? You see, another consequence of an interconnected world 
Guess who else has character? Organizations, governments, nations, not just individuals. How institutions behave collectively through their corporate practices, individually, companies act from character. And the greatest lesson that BP didn't learn, we all could have learned from the tragedy and the crisis of NASA. When the Challenger in 1986 blew up tragically, we went into NASA situationally and we said, what's missing here? Do they have internal controls and compliance and processes and all that? And lo and behold, we found that things were missing. So we spent years putting them in place. And then tragically in 2003, the Columbia blew up. And we went back into NASA and said, how could this have happened? And we discovered that all the controls were in place. But the culture was a broken safety culture. The character of the institution suppressed the governance. And what institutions need to understand is that their leaders need to create character in them. Because there were people at BP who knew what the right thing to do was, but they were probably too scared to do it. So the lesson from BP is that other institutions might have the same risks, because they too are in a very complex world, is to really build cultures that are sustainable, i.e. the character of the company. And so BP, Greece, BP is a tragedy that goes on. I think Greece, all the shoes, the other shoes haven't fallen yet. I want to just ask you a question, Tom. When I think of BP, I think of Greece, because you were recently in Greece, and you, you called me and you said, I saw something in Greece through this lens of situational sustainable that I never thought I'd see in my life. Tell us about Greece and your conception of that. So I did call Dove from Athens. I, I um, uh, was there a couple months ago, and um, I asked the doorman uh, at my hotel, um, tell me where the bank is. And of course, he knew just what I meant. And I walked about six blocks from my hotel in the heart of Greece, and there I came to the Marfin Ignatia Bank, um, which had been completely gutted by a firebomb. And it was in the middle of this beautiful street in downtown Greece. You could have gone to say the same thing in downtown Aspen. And in the middle of this beautiful street is a bank that is completely charred black. You could still, I was just there, I got there a couple days after the event, you could still smell uh, the, the, the charred ruins uh, that had been completely gutted by a firebomb when a, basically a, a group of anarchists firebombed the bank, um, killing three employees, including a pregnant woman, who had violated uh, a general strike that day, a general strike called in opposition to the government's stringent uh, economic uh, regulations that it was being imposed um, to solve the Greek crisis. And it was amazing. I, I just stood there, and people were coming with flowers and bouquets. There was basically a mountain of bouquets outside the bank. And I was really trying to think about what, what, what exactly they were mourning beside these people, because it seemed to be more than just the terrible tragedy of the people there. And there was a little drawing that caught my eye. It was a child's drawing. Uh, it was a picture of a tall building, and a um, uh, 10-story building or so. And there were two people in a window screaming, help, help. She had written, help, help, in Greece, in Greek. And then o over it, or under it, I don't remember exactly, she had written in Greek, according to my interpreter, into what world am I growing up, signed Lydia, age 10. And it was that question, really, that prompted me to give Dove a call, because what I really hit me in Greece 
was something that uh, my wife's on the board of Conservation International, and they have a new motto, lost there, felt here. Lost there, felt here. Well, we certainly know that in nature. When, when some ecosystem is lost there, we now know that it's felt here. But that's become equally true now in the financial realm. In a world, as Dove taught me, where people are increasingly technically interconnected, the meaning of Greece is we are ethically interdependent. The fact that Greeks had 900 swimming pools in Athens, according to Google Maps, and only six were registered with the tax authorities, suddenly became a huge issue for German savers. And the fact that Greek banks basically were all in a state of insolvency and that the Greeks government, Greek government's paper, commercial or, 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 uh, uh, bonds, were owned by the biggest banks in Europe is one of the things that basically tanked the Dow and affected every one of your 401ks. So as we become more technically technologically interdependent, other people's irresponsibility, including our own, by the way, what we do on the environment, what, what China does on the environment, in this hyper-interconnected... People ask me, you know, uh, you wrote The World is Flat, uh, you're going to rewrite it, I mean, economic crisis, you probably got it wrong. I, I tell people now, yeah, I, re I really got it wrong. I got it wrong big time. The world is so much flatter than I thought. It's, who knew that Iceland was a hedge fund with glaciers, okay? That's what we discovered in this economic crisis. But the deeper thing, and this is what really prompted my call to Dove, was if we are that technically, technologically interconnected now, if we are driving bumper to bumper, and my God, right now we have no bumper. We've used our spare tire and our airbag in the last year, and we're driving bumper to bumper, if we are that interdependent technologically, we are that interdependent ethically. And Dove, how do we manage that? I think it's even worse than bumper to bumper because there are more people on the road in that um, in an interconnected world, more people can be irresponsible. But there's good news, more people can do more harm but more people can do more good. And what an opportunity to inspire people on the better path. Now, the irony of Greece is that they taught us logic. They taught us reason. Greece. Uh, the Greeks disconnected with their own sustainable values. Who invented the virtues of moderation and, and temperance? And who said that excellence is not a single act? Let's just get, the, get it right in the situation. Aristotle said excellence is not a single act. It's a habit. We need to habituate responsible behavior. So what a place to disconnect that it happened in Greece. So I, I'm, I'm struck by that. But where do we go from here? It has to be a new conception of leadership that paints for people the picture that this is about winning. Uh, telling someone to be responsible, most people can't lose five pounds and they want to. They can't, you know, they eat dessert later that night even though they vowed not to eat it for a month. Most people can't stop smoking and their doctor told them to. Asking people to be more responsible, have more integrity, be more honest is a big ask. Unless you show them 
that it's propulsive. It guides them. It sends them. And the greatest secret about sustainable values is that they're free. Carrots and sticks cost you something. And in a recession, there are fewer carrots to go around to motivate people with. Ideas and sustainable values can be shared. They can be free. And it's about leadership showing how this gets you to the finish line more steadily. And that can be done. So before we go to yeah. questions, yeah. And, and I want to pick up from that point. How would you rate President Obama as an inspirational leader? What, what, do you, what would you say have been his strength? He, he certainly um, qualifies as an inspirational leader. That's sure. how he came from nowhere to get elected, and a lot of that was on the basis of inspiration. Yet you sense in reading the media lately, particularly around BP, uh, that people are hungry for something. You know, some people wanted him to emote more. Some people wanted him to get more angry. Um, he said, whose ass do I kick? You know, I mean, he, he, even he you know, fell into it. Is that leadership? Is kicking ass leadership? Uh, it's not power through, it's power over. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I look at our, our president through the lens of uh, sustainable versus situational all the time, and I obviously see both. Uh, the, his election was all about inspiration, um, but there's a vacillating between blame and shame. Uh, blaming a banker is back to those behaviors, blame, recrimination. Um, Fat so, cats, he called them. Uh, that's actually shame. Mm. You see, it's, I'm not a believer in blaming because we got to get on with, with this, FDR. Shaming someone, telling your kid don't eat like a pig, calling an investment ba or a banker a fat cat, is actually an inspirational thing to do because you're asking someone to not behave beneath how a human being behaves. Shaming someone is actually being inspirational because you are invoking a sustainable value. Blame, no. Shame, Yes. Now, BP stands for many beyonds. It also stands for beyond partisanship. What an opportunity uh, to be a unifier and to pick these crises as a chance to truly inspire a nation to come together around one thing. If finally our way of life has gotten too expensive and we're going bumper to bumper, and in his speech he used the word mission, what saddened me is he invoked landing on the moon. Most of the people that he's trying to enlist in a mission were not alive when we landed on the moon. We've got to create American greatness in the here and now and not invoke it from 50 years ago. And we landed on the moon after our president was tragically assassinated because there was a plan to execute on the mission. Engineers put it together. NASA was formed. A million people got involved in it. The mission so, survived the man which is inspirational leaders set off waves of human energy that depend on their ideas, that depend on the ethic to get us there. And they, frankly, these are not about becoming successful or great. The greatest uh, philosophical paradox is the paradox of happiness, that if we pursue happiness, it tends to elude us. When we do things of meaning, happiness finds us. The corollary in human endeavor and in business is the paradox of success. When we do things to be successful, to be the best, to be too big to fail, it eludes us. When we do things to be significant, to do things that really make the world a better place, success tends to find us. And I think our president has a chance to have a mission of significance and to inspire us to join with him, but have a plan to get there and not let up until we're there. And that's one of the things I think that's, and we'll go to questions here, that's frustrated me because I think that there is a great mission 
for Barack Obama. Uh, it's a mission I call Nation Building at Home. And um, he's been doing it piecemeal. Um, healthcare, financial reform, bailout, uh, energy. Uh, but he's never put it into a single narrative that, um, as we've talked about, Doug, told us healthy to go where? Healthy to do what? Healthy to be what? And I think that's what people still really hunger for. So with that um, a little introduction, we'd like to open the floor to any questions you might have. Please. We've got people with microphones on the sides. We've got a question up here. Oh, wait one second, because it's on TV and they want to be able to get your voice. I understand Tony Dungy, who was a great football player at the University of Minnesota. Yes. How do you get Goldman Sachs to be inspirational with sustainable values when they're telling their clients to buy in when they're selling out? Who's going to, I mean, who gets to these kinds right. of... In Good question. You know, that, that's another way of asking probably what, I, what we think of financial reform while we're at it since it was just uh, passed. Well, it's July 4th. Let me invoke another president. Thomas Jefferson said, the government that governs least governs best. And everybody walks around saying, our founding father was a libertarian. Small government, small government, right? Government's least, government's best. He's actually being misquoted. He went on to say, because people discipline themselves. He knew that these are the choices. You could have tons of regulation and tons of governance that stifle the best in us and our innovation. Or you could have responsible behavior propelled by sustainable values. And the more of that you have, the more government can get out. Now, I believe that this reform was just passed and not enough bankers are upset. Which bad tells sign. That's a bad sign. Which tells me that to them, small governance means situational freedom, the freedom to do what I can do, not what I should do. Now, this is not an all-or-nothing proposition. Closing loopholes, of course. More transparency, of course. Brandeis said sunlight's the best disinfectant. I believe in more transparency. Why not have a consumer protection? But I believe in good reform. But there is no regulation that can inspire a mortgage lender to not be deceptive in lending practices if he or she wants to be deceptive. Regulation and rules is good for structural requirements. Earthquake proofing this building because there's science that could be reduced to good regulation. But when it comes to human behavior, it's self-discipline propelled by values. And the only way I know how to unleash that is for banking to get back to its purpose, to be less innovative internally and to be much more focused on the mission of not only safeguarding the finances of others, but investing and propelling the innovations and entrepreneurial endeavors of others. And the more we don't exercise self-discipline and the more we do things that look like a bet or the more we conduct ourselves as though we're running a casino, the less sustainable we're going to be. And the more we do it so as to fuel the endeavors of others, that's fine. And finally, we've got to get to compensation. Um, I think say one thing on that yeah, point there, Doug, because uh, I think you could have, you know, the bill I think is about that thick, you know. Yeah. It actually could have been two sentences. Don't lend money to people who can't pay it back, and don't sell something to someone you wouldn't buy yourself. Yeah. Yeah, um, and everything else would seem to me is pretty much commentary. Um, you know, to Doug's point, 
you know, Jagdish Bhagwati, the Indian uh, American economist at Columbia, I thought said this really well. He said, we basically had a system of finance in this country for 200 years who saw its mission as financing creative destruction, the financing of new companies taking out old companies. What we fell into during the last 15 years was a system of finance built around destructive creation. We've basically gone from creative destruction to destructive creation. And um, that's a real tragedy. That is a real tragedy. People basically created a system of finance betting on raindrops and whether Lindy's had more che- sold more cheesecake than strudel, not financing the new ideas and new, new companies. But I was saying to Dove, because we celebrated the 4th of July yesterday, that um, I, I was off this week as a columnist, but I was really sorry because my column runs on Sunday, and I had a great 4th of July column, and since I couldn't write it, I'm going to share it with you. Okay. Um, and my 4th of July column was, thank God for the Russians. They still want to steal our secrets. They still think we have something to steal. What a great 4th of July, you know. Thank God for Putin. Next question. Back there, yeah. Um, caveat this question with uh, the fact that I uh, agree with what you guys are talking about and try to, to run my own company that way as Please. well. But in a, in a uh, flat world where there's just a diversity of cultures, people, and therefore values, in my opinion, who, who's the arbiter of what are good values and sustainable values or not? It's a really good question. Uh, it, it really goes to the original um, and I'm going to press Dove on this, the original conversation, conversations, because they were multiple, that we had on this, um, as we talked about situational values and sustainable values. I, I kept pressing Dove on really, I think, your question. Well, what is a sustainable value? Give me, I need a list, okay? I mean, I've got to write a column, okay? I mean, uh, I, you know, what is the essence of a sustainable value? How will I know it when I see it? You've asked the toughest question that you can ask in a globally connected world. There was a study done. Uh, an American, uh, you're driving in the car, and you're speeding, and you run over and you kill a child. This is a true survey that was done. And the police shows up, and the driver refuses to admit that he was speeding. They, would the friend tell the police that his friend, the driver, was speeding? 80% of Americans said yes. I don't know if they would have, but they said they would have. The Western European nations, it was 60%. Eastern European, 40 The two Korean nations was 10%. They asked the Americans, what do you think about the Koreans? They don't like truth. They don't have integrity. They're not honorable. They asked the Koreans, what do you think about the Americans? They don't respect friendship. They don't respect loyalty. And we need to understand that everybody has values at their core, things that matter to them and are the source of meaning. And leadership is about tapping into that. Now, in private enterprise, uh, you have an opportunity to enlist people that can share fundamental meaning. Uh, And that's one prerogative that you have in business is to try to enlist people to join uh, with you in that regard. Now, I cannot pay one of my colleagues for their integrity, a sustainable value. I can only pay for the behaviors that someone with integrity manifests. I can't pay for transparency. I can pay for what honesty and openness looks like in this practice and in that. I think deep down, respect, integrity, truth, honesty, 
are the values that allow human beings to have ongoing relationships. The work and the hard work that companies need to do after they've declared that they're about these values is to translate these commitments into behaviors. And I think there you can allow for diversity. How you show respect in one part of the world might change, but it will be respect animating both. I think it's that point of what allows you to have an ongoing, because that's, no. that's what broke down, ongoing relations, that's what really broke down in the financial crisis. And there's room for global diversity at the behavioral level, but deep down human beings can share values that allow them to have an ongoing relationship. You know, listening to Dove's answer really reminded me, uh, in 1999 I wrote a book called Lexus and the Olive Tree. It came out a year later in a lot of languages, including Arabic, and I was invited to do a book tour in Egypt uh, for the Egyptian edition of a book on globalization. It was a fascinating experience. I got to speak at a lot of schools and, and businesses and universities, and the U.S. Embassy, which had funded the publication of this book about globalization, co-funded it with an Egyptian group, um, assigned a woman from their press office to be my escort during that week and to help me around. So she heard me give the same talk about 50 times on globalization. And at the end of the week, I'll never forget this, we were driving in a van back you know, to the hotel, and she said to me, Mr. Tom, can I ask you one question? If Egypt does globalization, can we still give to charity? I thought, you know, wow, that's a, because giving alms is one of the five principles of Islam. And she was worried that somehow this capitalist system, this hyper-interconnectedness, meant that she couldn't give to charity anymore. And I think it it's a, was a I mean, powerful the, the, example of what, yeah. of what Dove is talking. You've got to tap into that. The best example is how many of you participated in a wave in a stadium? Right? <laughs> well, do you think that the, I actually got to know crazy George Henderson, who started the wave in 1981, the Yankees against the A's, game three. And we broke it down. He did not give everybody $10 to stand up. He didn't have enough money to pay off the wave. He didn't say, if you don't stand up, I'm going to punch you. He didn't pay off the wave that way. He didn't act non-transparently. Please get up, but it's a secret. I won't tell you why. If you break down the wave, and waves are so powerful that you don't need to be the richest person in the stands. You don't need to own the team. A few people with one too many beers can get everybody to stand up. Mothers, soccer coaches, CEOs, in an unbroken wave of human energy that is so cooperative that it sustains itself and goes round and around and around, and it is so powerful that people who might not share your values because they came to root for the opposite team stand up with you. Think of that. When a wave goes, the opposition stands with you. And I think that there is a way for inspirational leaders to get so deep into the core values that you can start to find commonality. And there's nothing like a mission to do that. Take another question. Over, over, over here. Raj, we'll get... I'm wondering, it's a follow-up to the conversation we just had. What role does our primary and secondary education system have or should have in developing sustainable values? Well, I said earlier that character is destiny. You know, um, every time I hear at companies, uh, I hear them talk about recruiting. They're recruiting for specialized knowledge, skill, and talent. In a flat, connected world, you can go anywhere for knowledge, skill, and talent. It's important. It keeps you in the game, but it's a commodity. I think now we're going to have to hire for character, people who know what it looks like to extend sympathy to others, who know how to relate to people of other cultures, who know that when you write an email to someone for whom a cow is a, is a sacred being and for you at stake, to be more thoughtful in that email. And we're going to start to cultivate the hiring of people 
with virtue and get back to the great works. And uh, so education is going to have to focus on character, but also cultures. Very early in life, people get up to go to the bathroom in the middle of an exam, and someone follows them there and says, you're probably going in there to cheat. And, and in educational institutions not only have to teach these values, they have to foster ethical cultures where the culture is doing the teaching because of how things within the school work. And I think there's a lot of work to do there. I think it's getting across, um, and, and the question came from Raj Venakota, who's founder and um, CEO of the Seed School in Washington, D.C., which is one of the great um, charter boarding schools uh, that's going to be featured in a movie uh, by Davis Guggenheim called um, Waiting for Superman. So um, it was a setup. Um, uh, no, but Raj, I think that um, uh, Dove's point, and this is something we've gone back and forth on, and, and mutate out-behaving as a source of competitive advantage. Thanks to Dove's uh, wife, Maria, we, we, we uh, coined a, 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 a term in the green space, out-greening. I happen to think out-greening is a source of competitive advantage. Um, we, we actually could out-green Al-Qaeda, you know, yeah. um, if we lifted uh, from ourselves the burden of being dependent on oil for that part of the world. I think companies, increasingly, in a resource-constrained world, will be able to actually out-green their competition. But I think out-behaving, out-greening, these, taking these sustainable values and making them superlatives, you know, I, I really think will be, will, will be important. Let's get another question. Yeah. In. Uh, all the way back there, yeah. The, the, the lady on the, on the edge of the row. Yeah. Uh, Thomas, I wondered if you can share with us what kind of values we could have learned, may have learned, from the recent change in our military in Afghanistan. Uh, next question, please. Um, <laughs> no, that's a, that's a very good question. It's very interesting. Um, well, I hadn't really... You know, it's a really um, hard question journalistically. That's, there's a lot of levels to this, I think. You know, the one I, I happen to know a little about this incident, and um, I know that the reporter from Rolling Stone. I mean, there were no. Um, it wasn't like the the people around McChrystal said, "Look, this is all off the record," and he violated that. Um, the fact is, he they they did not impose any ground rules, and and he did what um, uh, I think any reporter would do in that situation. He reported what he heard. Um, and obviously there's a tension there, and a lot of people have pointed this out, between reporters who cover a beat for a long time need to have a sustainable relationship with the people they cover. Um, and you know, a freelancer will come in from the outside. But I, I don't think you can blame the reporter you know, in, in, in this case. I think the most important issue is one that Admiral Mullen... Did you have, Admiral Mullen was here a week ago, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And he really spoke about this. And it is a sustainable value, and I think it's the real lesson. What makes our system work in this country is we have civilian control of the military. And that is a sacred principle. Uh, not a lot of countries in the world do uh, or have had that tradition as long and as deeply as we have. And ultimately, um, and tragically, General Crystal, uh, um, a really storied warrior um, and uh, uh, a general that really had earned the admiration of his soldiers, had to go because he violated that principle. Um, and that is a hugely important sustainable value for keeping our country, that we do have civilian control of the military. So hadn't really thought about your question more deeply than that, but sitting here, that would be the first thing that would occur to me. I guess we have time for one more question. Yeah, right here. We'll do two more, the two of you, can, real quick. Right here? Okay, one, one, one more, this is it, I guess. Go ahead. 
Just stand up. Uh, you've talked a lot of behavior, sorry. Um, how do uh, the researches and uh, the, the efforts by Dan Ariely and Jonah Lair and others who are looking at behavioral economics, how, how do those play into this, the, the sort of our better understanding of how, how we actually make decisions? Critical. Um, you know, classical economists taught us that man is rational. Well, employees and members of organization are man, so they too are rational which is why we use carrots and sticks. We just thought to motivate and incent and coerce them. Now, that worked okay in the industrial age when you wanted repetitive behaviors out of people. We wanted people to act like quasi-robots. Here's your paycheck, and we want you to come to work and put this widget in this hole over and over and over again. But today, we want creativity from people. We want disruptive innovation. We want creativity. We want ideas. And the only way to get that out of people is to inspire it in them. And the research from behavioral economics and neuroscience uh, is showing that there are ways to tap into intrinsic priorities that people have to send them on these journeys. And that people want to be paid well. They want carrots. They want few sticks. But they want so much more. And I think that science is really helping leaders say there's got to be a new way to tap into that. And I think it's helping a lot. Um, Doug, it was a treat to be here with you today. I think we everyone's got to adjourn to the to the main event opening. It was a and treat to be with you. Thank you very much for coming. Appreciate it.